People are strange. People get better. People. People who need people. Shining and happy people. I've seen all good people turn their heads each day. Welcome back to People with Barry. This is a podcast I started several months ago as a way to showcase uh, the interesting people and stories that I run across and have run across over my nearly three decades of writing for the local newspaper. Let me ask you a question. When you hear the expression or the phrase, arts are for all, what do you think? I think the answer probably depends on where you live, your economic situation, your uh, social situation, your perhaps your race could depend on a lot of things could be your interest in the arts but and this is something i've learned over the years the arts are are one of those words kind of like symphony or uh, museum that mean different things to different people in my mind they mean everything from music to food to culture to how your house is designed and your clothes are designed so they mean bigger things in some people's minds they perhaps mean uh, you know oil paintings of uh, old dead people that they've never heard of so it, it brings with it different things one of the things that i am finding the more i do this podcast and and again it focuses on people in the arts and culture world in our city primarily but not necessarily um, is that while the intention is that the arts are for all it the reality is that it's maybe not true again whether you have access or even an interest or you feel welcome or where you live as i said earlier what i'm finding is that a lot of what the focus of the so-called renaissance in chattanooga seems to be downtown oriented downtown specific and not everybody goes downtown or feels welcome downtown or is even You know, that's the focus of their world. It's something that I know the arts organizations are aware of. It's something they're trying to address. It feels to me like we're on the beginning of maybe a a different way of approaching things. My guest today is Ricardo Morris, who is in uh, group sales at the Chattanooga Theater Center. He's the head of group sales there. The reason that I wanted to talk to him, we ran into each other uh, several weeks ago at a lunch we know each other from 26 years ago when we were on the COPAC board, the board that oversees Barking Legs Theater, also a subject of one of these podcasts. Um, but he was telling me about the the new approach that the theater center is taking towards actually going to different communities. Rick is is a African American uh, man. He was involved with the uh, recent production of Fences at the Theater Center. It was an all-black cast, director, their lighting person is African-American. And they did something unusual. They went out into the 
churches. They had a lot of their cast member, cast and crew actually go to the churches where they attend and invite people to participate and to come to the theater. They, they realized that the the old way of doing things, maybe just putting an announcement in a newspaper or even on social media, could be done better. Could, there were other ways, and so they went out into the, the churches, and they will continue to do that through their church bulletins and outreach programs. It was just a, it was an interesting conversation, and it's an interesting concept, and it feels to me like the people are beginning to realize that the old ways aren't working or could be improved, and that we need to find new ways to reach new markets or new communities, if you will. And so we talk about that a great deal. It's a fairly lengthy podcast, I realize. I hope you'll give it a chance. Uh, we touch on a lot of things. His background, his he is a Yale, has his master's degree from Yale, went to Howard High School. We talk about the role that high schools play in this city. Uh, we talk a good deal about the difficulties he has found being a, a black man in the arts world in, in Chattanooga. So there, while there are a lot of tremendous things happening, there is still a long way to go. And I feel it's important to talk about it. Um, so that's kind of what we've focused on a couple of these recent podcasts. Like I said, it was my intention was to focus on people doing tremendous things, and we are. But as I talk to some of these people, I'm finding that there are parallel themes that I want to talk about. So I hope you'll give it a listen. Thank you very much. Thank you also to the Tivoli Theater for letting me use their 1921 Signature Lounge as a space to record this and other podcasts. It's a beautiful room, and I thank them very much. So here we go with Ricardo Rick Morris. Do you like Rick or Ricardo or uh, either or? It just it all depends on the relationship I have with the person. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the you know my classmates call me Ricardo because you have to use your real name in school. Yeah. Uh, all of my relatives is Ricky because I grew up as Ricky, and then uh, actually I was on the air at WNOO at one point in high school, and the uh, uh, general manager said you can't use Ricardo; that's too long. And so uh-huh. he, he decided it was going to be Rick, and then I left the K off because. That made more sense to be short for Ricardo. Yeah, sure. So that's the that's the whole history of my name. <laughs> what were you doing at NOO? I was a, a DJ nice. on on air. Um, they had a this very unique program while I was at Howard, where we got to go and actually work in different fields throughout the city. Um, I I started in a dentist office, didn't like that at all. Yeah, um, and then went to uh, WNOO and actually ended up majoring in communication, speech communication and theater at TSU uh, because of that experience. Nice. Um, David Moore, who is the chief know David very person well. at uh, Channel 12, he was in that same program. He's been there since the 11th grade in high school. Wow. So that's how incredible that program was. Kenneth Fennessey, uh, I think was, at, uh, was a producer at Channel 9, and he's still there through that program as well. David, was, I interned at WDEF when I was at UTC, and David was there then. Yeah. <laughs> he's been there since the 11th grade, which would have been 78, 79. He's, I think he's determined to beat Luther's record yeah. for WDEF. Right, right, right. No reason. I mean, he's, and he's excellent at what he oh, does. Oh, he's great. And he was super to me then, and he's still super to me. Yeah, he's a great guy. He really is. It's funny you mentioned that. Um, I was at career day at Notre Dame, which is where I went. Um, to school earlier in the week and 
that is the lesson or the message, whatever you want to call it, that I try to give them every time I do it is you don't know what you want to do. You right. think you do. Right. And it's okay that you don't. Um, try things. Mm-hmm. Most of us of a certain age who have survived <laughs> to be a certain age, that's what we, we more or less stumble across right. things is what it seems like. That's right. Um, so that's that's a neat program that they have at Howard. Well, um, this this was a federally funded program. I don't know if they have that right. same thing now. Okay. I know they have some work ready programs going on with maybe that same goal in mind of giving kids opportunities to experiment, which is like you said, that's it's so perfect. Yeah, it's so perfect to do that. The reason that I wanted to talk to you, um, Rick, a lot of. The focus of this podcast is just people that I met that are doing interesting things, uh, unusual things, unique things um, in the arts, entertainment, food. Uh, it's wide open and okay. it's wide open on purpose. Yeah. Uh, but my focus for the last 35 years has been arts and entertainment and all of that. So that's kind of where it's going to head. Okay. But uh, you're now um, at the... Chattanooga Theater Center. That's right. But we first met probably, what, 25 years ago when COPAC started, right? Weren't we on the board together at Barclays? Oh, that's right. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Probably more than about 26 or 27 at this point. That's right. It was just beginning. Yeah. So, yeah, we were just uh, ripping out the tiles, Ann and I, to, to get that started. So, so you're, you're going to have, you're going to have uh, a, a good perspective of where Chattanooga is. Have you been here since? I know you went away. You went to Yale, right? I did. I, um, it's, it's, um, I've been away several times okay. <laughs> um, for the lack of being able to find uh, employment in my area. As a, um, I ended up with a master's from Yale in arts administration. Okay. And um, while I do dabble a bit in the arts myself, I really think of myself more as a support for art and artists as an arts administrator. I, I, and this sounds weird, but I love paperwork. I love organizing. I love putting things together and making it happen. Um, and that was a great way for me to take the left side and the right side of me and put them together. Um, you could It's like a business degree, but the thing is that I needed to have artists around me and be involved somehow in the art. So being at a corporation in a cubicle or in an office just wasn't going to work for me. I did it for a little while and I was miserable. Yeah. Uh, And so that's what kind of led me back uh, to Chattanooga because I was working. Again, (laughs) I didn't do it on purpose, but that also is the message that I, I, I tried to give these kids at career day is find something you love you and George S. Clinton, I talked about it in our in a previous podcast. If you love sports, but you're five seven, you're not <laughs> going to be the quarterback. Right. <laughs> but there are other jobs exactly. in sports. Myself, I, I love music. Um, didn't grow up thinking I would be a journalist. I never saw the two meeting. You know what I mean? Yeah. I never saw yeah. uh, newspaper writing and music together. Right just stumbled into it and it's worked great for me and I, so I understand completely what you're saying and I say that to, whenever I'm asked to speak to students um, when I go around the table they all have varying interests I mean the Humber Institute for example um, they have an opportunity for us to speak to kids 
and I will say, What's, what are you interested in? They go, medicine. I go, well, you know, the sports medicine, dancers right. and, and professional people need that physical therapy kind of thing. So there's always a road right. into the arts if they're interested in the arts. And like you said, whatever else. Uh, That's right. They want, so. in, uh, I think most young people, when they hear medicine, think I don't like blood. Right. That's, that's the turn off. Yeah. Not everybody's cutting somebody They're open. Not. They're absolutely, it takes a lot of people to run a hospital and as well as run a theater. Yeah. Um, well, let's get into that. I mean, we could do career day all day long. That's not what I brought you here for. It's just the, the symmetry of it all or synchronicity of it all. Um, when did you start at the theater center? And let me just say one reason that I asked Rick to do this is we ended up at a lunch together. Um, which was really cool. It was. That was so much yeah, fun. Yeah, it was cool. Um, but for, we had about a five-minute fascinating <laughs> conversation that came out of nowhere that I just... With perfect strangers. Was, was, I thought you knew her. I didn't know her. She just said, what are you talking about? Um, but you guys were doing some neat things at the theater center that kind of dovetail with what Shane Morrow and I talked about in the podcast I did with him in, in my view, they dovetail, which is finding th new ways, thinking outside of the box, new ways to take art to everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our city, the art, Arts Build, has the theme now, arts are for everyone. Uh, Shane and I talked a little bit that that's not necessarily true. Um, I think from our conversation the other day, you and I, you and I agree with that. Yes, absolutely. And it seems to me an access issue and a communication issue. Um, and so, um, one of the things I learned from a couple of the other podcasts is that I talk too much. And not let you talk. So <laughs> I do the same. Back of my head, I'm thinking, stop talking. It's going to be a battle of talking. So tell me about. Well, I think it's also a matter, and, and, and most obvious is it's a matter of race. And that's the challenge that we're having in this country and definitely in Chattanooga is the access um, to the arts and for artists, particularly local artists, which is very different. And I know it's, um, you know, I've been told over and over again that a prophet in his own town can't prosper or no one listens to and, and I've, I've felt that over and over again and that's why I've had to leave every single mm -hmm. time um, because I think there's this um, perception of black people in Chattanooga and I'll, and I'll speak predominantly about Chattanooga but you know I've lived in other places Birmingham and Connecticut for six years which was way different <laughs> uh, South Carolina which was way different. So they've all been very different places, so not just the South, but the Northeast as well. And uh, I come back, I um, apply for different positions in the arts as an arts administrator, as a, with a master's degree in it. I, I, I look at everyone that's in those positions now, I go, I don't know anybody that's running an arts organization right now that has a master's in arts mm -hmm. administration specifically from Yale. You know, mm -hmm. and that that's the kicker because I think when I come back, and I know this is gonna sound well, I don't care how it sounds, <laughs> is that I'm still a black person in Chattanooga, mm -hmm. and and when you say what school in Chattanooga, they could care less about what university or even the level of education. They want to know: is it Baylor? Is it Macaulay? Is it GPS? Is it Howard? Is it public school or private school? Is it Chattanooga Christian? 
that's what they're asking is yeah. what high school absolutely you go to. and I'm like what difference does that make right and it does make a difference but if that's the limit of what you're uh, looking to as quality or as educated then you fall really short um, and it's interesting I was just seeing I think the Public Education Foundation with their fundraiser is introducing a young lady who has graduated from Harvard and she graduated from Howard so I didn't know of any other Howard graduate that had an Ivy League how you know Harvard Yale um, degree and I'm, I'm just so excited to hear that this young lady has done exactly the same thing. Yeah. You know, so that's that's to me is part of the, the challenge is that they can't the the establishment which has been the same forever. You know, when you think about the boards of directors and you think about how people get positions and and access, it's more about who you know. And uh, with such a polarized city, racially polarized city, it's a challenge to to get to know the people you need to know to get the position. Yeah. You know, if you're not a member of the golf club or if you didn't go to those schools, then I don't know, should I throw Notre Dame in that? <laughs> they were probably a little more diverse in, in that it was a... They definitely, yeah. um, which is, it's, you are 100% right. And it's, it's a long held truth that it does matter more where you went to high school yeah. than anything else yeah. in this town. That is that is an absolute truth. Um, for me, and I'm coming at it obviously as a white guy, middle class white guy who grew up in Brainerd, went to Notre Dame because it was Catholic, not because it was private. Uh, mm -hmm. The the priests there come out of their cassocks, so to speak. <laughs> if you say private, they will say it's parochial. Mm -hmm. It matters a great deal to them, the difference. But it, it to me, and, and I think Shane and I got to this a little bit, it, to me it's um, kind of a curse and a blessing in some ways. And again, this is coming at it from me. It is a, it's a big small town or yeah. a small big town, whatever you want to call it. So it's very possible to meet uh, and get in those sort of cliques mm -hmm. to some degree, at least it comes from my observation. you're calling it a clique. <laughs> yeah, group, whatever you want to call it. Makes it inaccessible for certain people. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, what's interesting to me is, well, from a casual observer, it, it almost seems, and I asked Shane this, is it a sinister thing or just a fact of the way it is? thing um, but the reality is it does create a problem it does whether it's sinister or not right. it creates a problem and, and I think that's a good example even between me and Shane because Shane's not from Chattanooga mm. you know he, he's he's from New Jersey is that right yeah yeah, yeah. from Bridgeport uh, yeah, uh, and uh, and I'm from here, and so you put two uh, black men that are working in the arts, and they listen to Shane more than they listen to me, kind of a deal. Wow, uh, and that's you know that's no that's no uh, fault of Shane's, but that's whenever they bring in consultants or they bring in they have any type of, of opportunity, it's usually somebody from the outside, and um, because to me, it felt like for me that. There is no way you can be a black person that went through public school in Chattanooga and be smart. 
Hmm. That those two things don't fit together for the white population in Chattanooga. They they can't they can't see how that could be a possibility. Right. Particularly if you didn't go to Macaulay or Baylor, you know they yeah. have that. You know it's like that's always. But, and and for me, I would not trade the uh, experience at any of. The, I went to Calvin Clifton Hill, Calvin Donaldson, Alton Park, and Howard, and then an HBCU at Tennessee State University, um, an undergraduate school, and because of that experience as a black male, um, I felt very supported, you know, and I think if I had gone to, I had an opportunity, they offered me a scholarship to go to Macaulay when I was in sixth grade at St. Elmo Elementary School, and uh, I said no, because I wanted to be with my friends, yeah. right, I didn't, uh, I didn't have that type of understanding that if I had, this would have, you know, changed the trajectory of my life forever, but in reality, um, I still did the same achievement, just took a little longer, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, and my mother had, I remember distinctly, um, Principal Kaiser, um, Marianne Kaiser's yeah. dad was the principal yeah. at St. Elmo when I was there. Um, I think it's Henry. Henry I think that's right. Yeah. And uh, he, he brought my mom in. We sat in his office. He goes, I can get him in Macaulay if you want to do that. And this is like a movie in my head. I, my mom turned to me and goes, what do you want to do? And, I'm thinking, and so now in hindsight, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Yeah. Did you ask the sixth grader what they want to do? <laughs> you should have said, not even yeah. looked at me. Right. Just told them, oh, yes, when does he start? <laughs> but didn't have, again, I think that's, a, that's the other part of what um, the, the, the community is facing here is that, that, that understanding of how education does have that impact. I think that's something we've lost over the years. Um, you know, you look back at the Harlem Renaissance and the whole trajectory of the black population uh, since before Jim Crow and after Jim Crow, um, that momentum has been somehow diminished. And you're saying, is it sinister? I think it is. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's anything benevolent about what <laughs> white people do for us. The desegregation was the worst thing that could have possibly happened. And I think that that came about because they were looking at the success and the education that we were that we were accomplishing in our own kind of segregated communities where we weren't influenced. I didn't know what racism was until I left mm. Howard High School, right? In in terms of the teachers that I had and the community that rallied around me. If I did something wrong before I could get home, five people knew that. I had done something in my little <clears throat> in my village of Alton Park, and 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 they were there to do something about it. Yeah. Whether it was punish me or go to the school and find out what was happening, there was this this community that um, has, I think, uh, been purposely divided because that's that's how you conquer is you divide, you know, and that's that's been going on for the last four hundred years since we first got here yeah. <laughs> this year, by the way. You're talking about, I remember um, when I was in seventh grade, and again, I went to OLPH, which was Catholic, mostly white. Uh, Suddenly, a young kid named Cecil Wright showed up in our class. And I, only in hindsight, because I was so insulated and so in my own world, I remember hearing the Wilson Pickett riots and bricks through windows and I remember hearing the name Reverend H.H. H. Wright mm-hmm. 
-hmm. I didn't put the two together until years later that Cecil was now at this Catholic school because his dad was being threatened and and um, life was probably very very difficult I know it was very different for them Um, so here's you know Cecil is now in think he was the only black kid in our class sure. um, so I remember going camping uh, the coach Don Waters took four or five of us camping when we graduated Cecil was one of them we went camping up in Townsend and I didn't hear, hear till years later that the guy who ran the campground was not happy that coach Waters had brought Cecil with us sure. Don told him to go pound salt we, <laughs> we were going to have a good time and we did but uh, you know it, it was just that was looking back it was a whole different right. world right. so but it gets to that sort of access thing one of the things uh, let me recap the conversation that, that I re- referenced earlier you and I were at this luncheon and you started telling me about the work that you're doing at the theater center which I want to get into but you were saying that you're taking the communication, you're using churches, uh, the church bulletins, and, and I know uh, Shane did uh, auditions at what the uh, one uh, of the rec centers, rec centers, actually, which offsite uh, went to the community to find the talent, and uh, a woman sitting next to me snapped her head at you and said what are y'all talking about I heard churches and uh, but one of the things you this conversation folks I I won't be able to recount it because it went a hundred miles an hour in literally like four minutes but one of the things you said was you had been raised to think you as a black person attained a certain education and status and then left your black community that that was the that's what you did when you found some success. She completely countered that and said, I was raised to believe that everyone was equal and you stayed in your community and you worked within your community to fix things. Um, Like I said, it was a fascinating conversation. My head was on a swivel. It's funny because I just, uh, Erica um, Blackman just did uh, an event at Jasmine, as a matter of fact, uh, what I guess is Rise, Rise. Now. and uh, we watched part of an interview with Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin uh, mm-hmm. or a conversation and the, and we had a discussion after that and a lot of the responses to this uh, series that she's put together was about why are we still talking about this that interview was in the 70s 40 years later here we are same kind of conversation right. uh, about access and about how blacks are being treated in this country. And, and now, this last two years, honestly, I've been incredibly depressed because I, I, there was some hope. And then you, you, you see t- tiki torches and Nazi flags right. in the United States. Shooting just yeah. last night in it, New Zealand. New Zealand, for, right. You know? Yeah, it is stunning. Uh, I'm like, wow, did we really, have we really come anywhere <laughs> around? Um, but that was, I think that was... Uh, the part of the conversation we were having uh, when we listened to Daryl Jr. was the idea of, uh, and, and actually what I did was I actually come back to him. Her mother was my, is my neighbor. We live in this, like two blocks from each other. Right. And I didn't even realize she was there. I knew her mom and waved to her and we talked a lot. And she would walk the neighborhood and we talked. But the, the idea is that once desegregation happened, 
Um, and I think part of what we've been inundated to believe is that white is better and that we're always, have always been constantly trying to achieve whiteness. Right. And, and that meant a lot of different things when success is involved. So you work, you get educated, and the, the trajectory is then you leave because success looks like the suburbs. Because that's, that's what we have as an example. When you've grown up in right. poverty, and if you have any sense of success, whatever that means to you, in this case probably money, because now you can afford a house in East Brainerd, or in Udhuar, or in Atherson, or in any of the outlying suburbs that um, the reason they're there is because of white flight from the inner city when blacks were able to move into those neighborhoods. Um, and so now we're seeing a complete reverse of that. Um, and so what I was saying t to her was, um, as we achieve the success, we abandon our own community. And, and I do think that's, and her experience obviously is valid, and what her experience was, but overall, we can see the deaths of black communities because successful people move out. Mm. And uh, they have, because they think, <clears throat> excuse me, white is better. And so rather than continue to shop on MLK or 9th Street then in the 60s, we started shopping at Miller's and Loveland's and The Leader, because now we've sat in at, at Woolworth's <laughs> right, so that we can now eat there instead of eating at Mimo's. Right, and so that's and so now Mimo, you know, he he survived it all. But there's so many businesses that were there: doctors, lawyers, restaurants, dentists, you name it. You just that's where the black community did business. And once um, you know Jim Crow was abolished, even though it was '63, it still took time for us to be able to have even more access to those things. We immediately did because we thought and have been taught and trained that white was better. And so if it didn't come from Lovelands or Millers, and it came from whatever the general store may have been on 9th Street, it wasn't good enough. Because we wanted to look as successful as our white counterpart, because we have been trained to think that's what success looks like. It's... And that's I, deep thinking, I guess. Maybe. No, no, I, I get it. And I wanna go, I'm, I'm thinking even, even deeper. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say, I'm probably going to say some things today that I hope are devil's advocate type stuff and people understand that. So some of it is not necessarily my own thoughts and I hope I can make that clear, but it seems to me there's a sort of a macro way of looking at things and a micro way of looking at things. It seems like overall, uh, there is an emphasis to try to make everybody the same. Mm-hmm which is part of what you're talking about because the truth is a lot of white people in certain communities do the same thing you're just talking about you know the goal is to get the bigger house in the nicer suburb or whatever and right. you end up leaving uh, a lot of um a lot of the public schools uh complain and even some of the like notre dame uh there is a complaint that we lose some of our best and brightest and wealthiest um, for a couple of decades there Notre Dame was having a real problem everyone was leaving going to the Baylor Macaulay and right. GPS and it was never the the bad ones right. you know it's never the it's the families with money that can make a difference it's the kids with 
that are smart. We're in the middle of all that families with money in school, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. People paying for colleges and right. yes. getting their kids in the best. Yeah, that's the whole <laughs> How <laughs> apropos is this? <laughs> so, uh, you know what I'm saying? On that, on that macro, the, you know, from the 100-mile view, it's a lot of the same things. It, uh, and it can devastate, I mean, a community. Sure. Well, but the difference in that, obviously, is, you know, I can never cover up my black face. Yeah. Right? And, and if you achieve a certain level of success as a white person, nobody ever has to know what your past was. Whether you came from a trailer park or whether you came from anywhere else. And, and even, and, and I don't say the same thing about, about black people, that not all black people grew up poor. Right? There, were, there are affluent blacks since the beginning of time. And but at the same time, they're still black, and that was one of the things points that Dr. King made was it wasn't about race; it was about color of their skin, just sheer color of your skin. I don't know who it was. It might have been Franklin Ajay. It was a or AJ Ajay. You remember the comedian? Mm-hmm. He he was not being funny, but he made a point years ago that I heard that has stuck with me. He said, he asked a guy that was talking to him, a white guy, how, how many minutes of the day do you think about being white? Right. And the guy said, none. He said, I think about being black all the time. I have to. <laughs> I had the same conversation yesterday. Did, really? Yeah. I, I'm not going to pretend day. that I understand uh-huh. what you're going through. So please understand if I say anything that sounds like I do, uh-huh. I don't. But I, that, I get that. I mean, I can't imagine... Can I go down this street? Mm-hmm. Can I go into this? Why is that person following me in the grocery store? You know, that's it. Or pulling me over. Pulling me over. <laughs> Should I be scared? I had a, a when I after after grad, after I started teaching at Hickson, I um, got a membership at the Walden Club. Because then I started, I was also a realtor, and so I was selling houses, and that was kind of a great opportunity to meet clients at the Walden right. Club. Because that's what you do that's in That's what you do, right? And I distinctly remember getting on the elevator, shirt, suit and, suit and tie, probably bow tie, because that's my signature is a bow tie. And uh, this white lady got on with me and clutched her purse and moved to the corner. And I go, I have on a suit, so I'm going to mug you yeah. and take your purse with a suit going to the Walden Club. So we were going up. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You know, and but that's that's the that's the constant. No matter what you look like, what you dress, how you speak, um, or, or any of the things that we we have been we've come to know as bettering yourself, and, and that doesn't have anything to do with race. It's this an internal thing for me uh, to something that no one can take away. But even with that, you know, here's this woman feeling somehow threatened because I'm black and I'm on the elevator, and just it's the two of us. Going to the Walden Club. <laughs> Again, it's funny. Probably Franklin Ajay hasn't been mentioned in, in years and years. But he had a bit about he and a buddy walking down the street. And a white couple up in front of him kept looking over their shoulders. And uh, and uh, he's talking about, you know, we're just walking and talking. And uh, the punchline is, so we went ahead and mugged him. Just because just it made us mad. <laughs> that's, that's, that is the constant... Uh, thing and then and then we're having to we have to deal with the white fragility of I don't want to hear about that you mm-hmm. know um, that's not that's not office conversation I, I 
you shouldn't think like that. And the fact that you're telling me how I should think in itself is a, is a problem. You know, yeah. I, I can't, this is how I feel, and this is what I think. And you're telling me I shouldn't uh, is part of your privilege and, and your uh, ability to think that you can tell me not to think that way. Right. One of the things I've noticed, um, especially the last couple of years with all the discussions about statues and mm-hmm. this, that, and the other, is it seems like a lot of... Um, white people in particular want the discussion to be centered about around the here and now. They want to say, this is 2019. You shouldn't feel that way, like right. you said. Yeah. Number one, I understand what you're saying. You're telling you how you feel. Right. They, But there's a lot of history that got us to this point exactly. that um, you just can't forget. Right. right? So well, I kind of understand... Yeah, and, and the challenge of that is, while and, and, the, and the big one is, I didn't own slaves. My parents didn't own slaves. My grandparents didn't own slaves. Nobody in my right. line ever owned a slave. And, and, and yes, we're living today and there are no slaves, but there, there are. And so then you think, and you're trying to get them to understand, well, you, while none of you as a, the white population may have, if some of you didn't have slaves, you, you've all benefited from it. The country has been, has, we would not be the world power that we are today with uh, economically the richest country in the world had it not been for the cotton industry. That is what set us on that trajectory uh, economically is the, the cotton industry. and. That's what we were there for, was to pick the cotton for free. And that helped build the wealth, that helped build the country, that puts us where we are now. And anybody who's white and able to um, benefit from that, whether you own slaves or not, your whiteness has allowed you to benefit from it. I I, I love Westerns, and there's a channel now called the Inspire Channel, Mm -hmm. that they send Gunsmoke and High Chaparral and Big Valley and all that. And it's interesting that they're talking about just winning the West, right? They're taking land. Right. We we didn't have even that opportunity to to have to go out west. I mean, some did, I'm, I'm, some, but very few, and stake our claim of land because at that time, when when the land grab was happening, we were still slaves, and uh, so by the time we were able to even pop, think about it, you know, this is 1963, right? Uh, it was all gone. You know, people with 100,000 acres, how do you have 100,000 acres <laughs> of open land? You know, uh, how does that happen? Well, the government helped you. And then when immigrants came over, the same thing. They were encouraged to move past the East Coast and to go settle towards the West. And so whether you're the Irish and English and all of the immigrants coming over from Europe um, had that opportunity. The interesting thing about these westerns too is that the Hispanic community from Central Mexico and Central America, same thing, because Mexico went all the way up right. to Canada, right. practically, and they were landholders, so they portrayed them even in the movies. No black people, but there are Hispanic people who are landowners, who are kings and queens, and whatever the royalty uh, kind of situation was for that area. They're Real Hispanic people in these movies, in these in these shows. Um, so, so that's that's the other uh, thing that Dr. King was saying too is that 
people say, oh, why haven't y'all done more? Why haven't you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps? And he says, it suggests to, to say that we should pull ourselves up by our bootstraps when you haven't given us any boots. You know, what, what happened to those 40 acres and a mule? Where, where did that land go? That was, it was never, I don't think it was ever a government program. I think one general said, oh, I'm gonna free you and give you 40 acres and a mule. And it right. never happened. I mean, reconstruction was a disaster. If, if you won't even mention it. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I know I, I like history. That's that's the other part of what I what I enjoy, and uh, and I don't mean to dwell on it, but every cause and effect is part of that. You know, and so perception, and it's, perception. it's it's. I don't think people, a lot of people, realize how influential TV shows movies yes uh things like that are still yes um i i just watched the documentary rumble i don't know if you've seen that that. it's about the role the american indian played in the early days in the development of music in this country Mm. i had no idea um it's a fascinating documentary i recommend it for you and anyone else but it it has made me rethink what I knew about early blues and who influenced what and how sure. it developed and if you know if if you're not told those you're not made aware of it you just assume that what you are told is the truth right. um, so uh, a little bit different. How far um, off the topic are we? <laughs> I know, right? I say we're gonna we're gonna come back to the theater center, <laughs> but it's all but it's all interrelated, and that's that's why I always you know the, the, you know, and the, I think that's the other thing that young people say too is that black or white or or anyway they don't want to know the history. It's like that doesn't impact me today, uh, and I don't understand how um, how they come to that place to think that they achieved whatever it is, particularly in the black community, on their own. without the sacrifice that's come before them. I had a conversation about statues with a friend who said, I never give one second's thought to what that statue represents. And I said, well, you live on Signal Mountain, which is the whitest community in the country, officially. If it's not first, it's second. (laughs) I, I said, why would you? Right. But that doesn't mean that Somebody else does, right. or should, or shouldn't. You know, I. That's. I. Anyway. I'm running through my head to think of: Are there any statues of black people in Chattanooga? Well, there's that, right? That's a point. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. There is. I know. Um, or, and, and that's been part of what, um, you know, the work that I'm at the theater center and uh, with the Black Arts Festival is. And, and trying to really drill that home that we've got to see our faces. Uh, and as a, as a love of the arts, I, you know, I remember going, I was talking to um, Anna Ventura, as a matter of fact, uh, to see the Nutcracker early in my life and being the only black person in the audience and seeing nobody that looked like me uh, on stage. And so as a, I grew up, in eighth grade, I started taking dance from a, a woman who, Brenda, Hickman Jones, who was teaching it at the Arlen Park Rec Center, and you know, just grabbed a group of kids out of the rec center and started showing them different things and created this dance company called the Body and Soul Moving Company. Um, and so I was 
dance has been my first love since that experience. I danced through college and taught dance at Hickson. But going to that performance and not seeing myself made me think, well, can can I be a ballet dancer? And no, because black people don't do ballet. And so seeing ourselves in, in different positions in the arts and business is important. And when we look at even um, me coming up, having teachers, black teachers, black male teachers, um, encourage me about education to think, oh, wow, look at Mr. Hogan, or look at Mr. Burke, or look at all these black male teachers in school, um, I can do it too, you know, and, and, and their, um, the way they cared about what happened to me was important and about all the students. And, and we were, we were taught, you've got to be five times better. If I heard it once, I heard it every single day from Alden Park to Howard, you've got to be five times better. You got to be five times better just to be on the same plane. Um, and we got that continuously. And to me, that's the difference that we're experiencing in education is that um, we don't have those teachers in place anymore. They're able to tell their black students, you've got to be five times better. And because of the desegregation, um, even more so now that you can recruit kids to play basketball and football, they've taken that out of the, out of the, to the black schools. And like you were saying with Notre Dame, with the rich families moving away and, and what you're left with that's the same thing that's happening in the schools that are now opportunity zone schools, is that it's been drained of that top level student because now they either have a scholarship to Macaulay, Baylor, or GBS, right? Because they need to have that kind of density with, and population within their schools. Um, and so they're taking them away. And I, I don't blame any parent for wanting the best. I wish my mom had thought better about right. <laughs> sending me to Macaulay instead of letting me make the decision to go over hard. But, but what do you expect when, when all of that top tier has been taken away? Even as athletes, you have to, there's no pass, no play, so they've got to be somewhat uh, academically inclined just to play uh, in those schools. And, and that's been drained away. And, and what we're left with is what we have now. It's another dirty little secret, I guess, along those lines from, from what I've heard talking with people over the years is, and those are all great schools. Baylor, Macaulay, GPS sure. do tremendous things. I, I'm, not, I'm not here to knock them. Um, the, what, the other thing that can happen is, is say they pull a talented kid from Alton Park or East Lake. He goes through there. I don't know that he's 100% accepted oh, yeah. there. So now he's not a part of that community for the rest of his life, and he's not a part of the Alton Park community for the rest of his life either. So both kind of, you know, there's shortcomings for a little bit of every everybody. And, 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 I, and I personally feel that because um, I'm the only person in my family to go to college. And when I went, I, I, was, I taught at Hickson for eight years, British Lit and Dance and Theater. And um, when I went to my grandmother and said, oh, Granny, I'm going, I got accepted to Yale. Of course, she, she had no idea what that was. All she thought was, she said, boy, why do you need any more education? You're a teacher. You yeah. know, she couldn't, <clears throat> couldn't conceive why I would quit perfectly what they thought was, you know, at the top of the list, and it would have been based on the rest of my siblings and other relatives, you know, 
why would you need to, why would you do that? Why would you quit your job to go back to school back again? To school. Uh, had no, I had no concept of that at all. And, uh, and I think that's part of it. So now when I come home, even after going to undergraduate at TSU, I came home, you know, you meet different people, you have different experiences, and your family, they haven't had that. And so they look at you like, who do you think you are? You think you're better than us now that you've gotten a college degree and now you're a, yeah, you know, and so now I'm, I, I don't even fit in with my family and this group of people in Chattanooga who might be on, you know, educated or whatever, I don't fit in there because I'm black. So, and, and now beyond my family, it's still a black community and, and going back and you, and you speak well or you do any of these things, I think, well, who do you think you are? Are you trying to be white? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, you can't equate that with being white, you know. And that that's the other sort of nerdy little <laughs> secret is, and, and I you mentioned it. Yeah, I'm tr- this is why I'm having this podcast. I think it's important to talk about it's this stuff, and I don't think anybody we have. You got to honestly talk um, about it. There's so many couple things related to what you were just saying, but. Um, and I've again, I've used these examples. Um, first of all, Dave Fleshner at the paper is really good about pounding this. Every time it comes up in a in a discussion, he raises his hand whenever somebody says the black community in Chattanooga. Dave says there is no the black community in Chattanooga. <laughs> there are many communities within the black. Um, population in Chattanooga, just as there are in the white population in Chattanooga. There are, I mean, you can break them down by school, which Mm -hmm. we certainly do. You can break them down by where they live, which we certainly do. So... Socioeconomic. Socioeconomic. (laughs) Light skin, dark skin. Oh, yes. Um, Good hair, bad hair. (laughs) Good (laughs) We are laughing, but it's the truth, isn't it? I had a... I had an interesting discussion with uh, Scott Lindsay and Sharita Allen. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know them uh, about this. They were recommending a book to me about that very thing. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember the name of the book, but it was the, the I don't know what the word is, the light skin, dark thing, thing the good hair, bad hair thing. And how it, it's, isn't that interesting to me that. And it goes so far back. I mean, it, it's the beginning right. of time. It's the, it's the beginning of it's slavery. That, that is a result of slavery because you had the indoor and the outdoor. Right. And the indoor, obviously, no Africans are light-skinned, right? In their, in their natural form from Africa are not light-skinned. Maybe some shades different if you're in Egypt and some of the North African um, countries, but they're not. And so we know that the light skin had to be the result of the slave master, you know, right. raping the, the women and having their kids. And so... That, that paternal, whatever it might be, brought them into the house. Oh, this is my son. And, and there's no way his wife didn't know because they're light-skinned now. Right. It had to be your child. And so now you have this whole, I'm indoors, I'm dressed nicely, I'm in, you know, and, and, and so, uh, you get education just by virtue of being in the house, right? So if their slave masters, daughters and sons are being taught to read and write, you're going to learn just by standing at the door as a servant. Right? Access. Access. Again, it's all access. About access. And so as a dark-skinned black person that's sitting, that's out in the field picking cotton, 
from sun up to sundown, I feel some type of way about these light-skinned ones that are able to be in the house. And so that's been, and, and, and that uh, migration once slavery was um, somewhat emancipated, um, moved to the north, you have the light-skinned blacks moving to the north as well, part of that migration, but they're better educated than the dark-skinned blacks who can't read even. So now the job market is different. So they get the factory jobs and these the lighter skinned ones get to go into college and do all these other things. And I think it also um, you know, has to do with comfort that white people are more comfortable with light skinned black people than they are dark skinned black people. And so that means, again, access because I'm more comfortable around you because you look closer to me right. and you feel less threatening. Then. Again, it's that macro micro it thing. Is. People are just more comfortable with people that, that look like and them. sound like them. Exactly. Black, white, white. So a good hair thing means that as a mixed race child, you're going to have straighter hair, which is more like his father. And as a, and it's funny because I always say, you know, we're closer to Africa than you are because we're less mixed, maybe or whatever. But they was keep finding these different ways to to make ourselves feel good about who we are individually. And, and that's, I think that's a human thing as well, and we've just kind of taken it to a whole nother level. Where that the black community notion manifests itself, particularly in the arts, which is what we're supposed <laughs> to be talking about, we're it's mainly talking about, I know, um, <laughs> is, and I, I've seen it. I've, I've been on boards and I've seen it um, and we've talked about it on this podcast a little bit, but where it manifests itself is when people are putting together an event, mm -hmm. there are boxes to tick is what I like to like to call it. It needs to do this. It needs to, you know, it needs to raise money. It needs to do this. It needs to, it needs to serve the community. Right. And there's always a box that says it needs to serve the black community. Right. And where that, I think, and that kind of gets to that sinister thing where where I think it's maybe not as sinister, but the effect is the same, right. is once that box is ticked, they think the entire community is served, served and everything <laughs> is fine. And I don't think, I think in some instances it probably is on purpose, um, it may be racist, but I think in some it's not. I think it's just a complete non-understanding right. um, growing. Uh, well, and to me, and, and that's, that's, that's one of the, the draws that the arts have for me, is that um, it does help in, in those types of situations where you know, we, we just finished Fences at the Theater Center, and uh, on Sunday, with this past Sunday, was last performance, and I asked if I could, like, speak to the audience. So I brought all, you know, they did their vows, <clears throat> they, um, and then I brought all the crew out, and then I was there as a director. It's probably the first time at the Theater Center we've ever had a black director, all black cast, a black lighting designer, and a black costume designer working on a, a black playwright's show. And so that was history for us. I'm going to say it's a safe bet that yeah. you're right. That's <laughs> probably <never. laughs> And it was fantastic, you know. And, and yeah, there were some challenges because we're bringing in people outside that were, that were guest artists and not part of the staff. And so trying to get them up to speed on how we do things at the theater center has been a challenge. But 
uh, part of, of me being there and, and, and definitely to Todd Olson, who's our executive director's credit, is he's, he's very interested in not just being the theater center. And we virtually have turned into an art center, which we don't have in Chattanooga, where there's you know, opportunity for all of the different genres of arts to be performed. So we've got uh, Chattanooga Ballet doing their concert there on our stage. We have the um, Chattanooga Film Festival that was held there last year. We have uh, Moon River Festival, which is a music festival that was held in Coolidge Park, and they utilize a lot of our building for their artists and guests. Um, I, I started the Chattanooga Festival of Black Arts and Ideas. We did a, a great majority of the events were held at the theater center. Uh, and then all of our plays that we do, both for children and for adults. And now even with scheduling the types of plays, um, it, it's, it's been a long kind of standing tradition that the theater center did its black play. I'm doing the quotes every year. There was always that one black play. Um, tick the box is ticked. Tick the box is ticked. And, and we're outside of the box now because even in our next season coming up, uh, The Lion King is, is part of it, our, our children's theater and adult theater thing we're doing. I'm directing the A-Man Corner, which is James Baldwin in December. We're doing Dream Girls uh, in the spring. Um, and then the second one of August Wilson's plays, Jim of the Ocean. So here you have four or five plays that are either black playwrights or all black casts. Or, or, or their Dream Girls and Amen Corner All Black cast, a musical and a straight play. So changing that whole um, idea of what the theater center is is part of what I've been working uh, with Todd to do. And um, I'm the rental and special events manager, so I'm, I have an opportunity to go out and seek um, people from the black community or black artists to do things. We just did the Black History Month exhibition of visual, black visual artists in the lobby of the theater center, you know. And so those types of activities is part of where we're headed and uh, are working on as part of our plant at the theater center. The, the key sort of thing maybe, and the thing that made me want to have you on as a guest is that going out mm-hmm. part. That's what's, I mean, the, what we've been talking about is important, but the going, or, or Going to the community, going to the churches, going to the rec centers, and um, spreading the word right. and telling, making everyone feel welcome. Well, and, and, that, and that's and, and it's, that's been the biggest challenge, I think. A lot of the more established arts uh, organizations, uh, you know, and I'm not calling out anybody either, but you know, the Hunter, the Symphony, you know, they are what they are, and for the most part. You have to come to the hunter to see the exhibit. There's not a traveling one. I don't know what it could be. Maybe I don't know that goes and puts up an exhibition at uh, Howard High School or at Brainerd or at Dalewood. Uh, I don't know. That could be a possibility. Our, my first experience with uh, the hunter as a uh, elementary school kid was they used to do the international trees, mm-hmm. and right. we would always right. go every year right. to the see Christmas trees. the Christmas trees right. at the Hunter Museum. But at, at, outside of that event, no connection. I didn't even know the theater center existed until I came back uh, after college as a theater major because I was interested in it. So I started to seek out those opportunities, and uh, so 1985 was my first experience at the theater center. And so I think that is important that 
we can't just sit back at this point and say, you know, we built it so you should come. That's not working, particularly in such a polarized community, because um, Jim Crow and and slavery was not that long ago, and for some reason we think it's in the same year as the pyramids were built. <laughs> you know, some right. some ancient history. It's not. That's 1963. I was alive during Jim Crow, right? And my grandparents definitely were, and so they passed that. That, that that's a generational knowledge that gets passed down that's still relevant today. You know, you don't go here, you don't go there. Don't get caught after dark on Sand Mountain. I mean... And I mentioned it before I, I spoke. I was part of a panel group, and it was mostly underserved. Um, it was all races. And I was telling, I was bragging on all the cool things that are happening downtown, so many of them that are free, and a, and a woman... A young white mother said, "I mean, how am I going to get my three kids there? You know, a, a bus okay, ticket yeah. and and uh, lunch yeah. is twenty bucks right. that I don't have. Right. You know, right. and I, I really felt um, ignorant yeah. for having I never thought of that. I, again, why would I? That's not my. You know, and, and I can and, drive downtown. Yeah. And, and, we, and we're seeing more of that because definitely socioeconomically, definitely racial." when we're looking at the growth that's happening, the renaissance of Chattanooga, we're not part of that. That's We've not been included. Right, and that's really why I started doing some, one of the reasons I wanted to start doing this podcast is that occurred to me. Is I, I had written all these stories about the wonderful things that are happening, and they are wonderful things, but they're not accessible to everyone. They're not. Um, not. It really is a downtown thing. It is. And not everyone can get downtown. Or, or live downtown or, or feel welcome, feel welcome downtown. downtown. I, I'm hearing that more and more. Um, See, the theater center is on the North Shore. That's got to be the widest part of Chattanooga. <laughs> Single Mountain is the widest it's, part. Oh, that's right. North, right. North Shore is, <laughs> right. You know, they're kind of connected, right? right. That side of the river, you come off a signal to the North Shore. Right. But that's, that's uh, and that's been, whenever I ask that question, when we're having these uh, opportunities, I was talking about the fences, I said, look to the left and right of you guys, and what do you see? You know, there's black, there's white here. Can you tell who's rich and who's poor? You can't. And, and that's what the beauty of the arts are for me, is that, you know, we can all come together in a theater, in a music hall, at a festival, and enjoy that without those kinds of, of labels uh, all the time. And, uh, and usually it's, it, it creates a sense of, of well-being. The arts make you happy. That's a great opportunity to, to, to mix those things together. And that's one reason why I did the Black Arts Festival, too, is that um, I wanted to definitely highlight black artists and to say, we don't just do hip-hop. And, and rap, we do classical, we do ballet, we do jazz, we do all of these different um, forms of the arts. And um, so that's what the festival is about. It's really focusing on the local black artists, but then also black artists from all over the country at some point in the world. How are you and, and this new program being received in the black churches, the black communities that you're reaching out to? So then that and that was a that was an interesting partnership at the theater center. I was working with Julie Van Volkenberg, who is our marketing manager, um, and she was very um, open and, and even questioning, well, how do we reach? And that's always the question for for these organizations: how do we get the information 
to the black community. And, but then it kind of stops there or they'll do something in the courier and think that all black people read the courier. <laughs> when most don't even know that it exists. Um, I think it's more, as you, as we're talking about today, we need to think outside of the box and we need to, we being the community, the, the, the community, <laughs> and I, do, I am using that term correctly, um, you know, we need to be aware of that and realize that there is no the black community. And intentional. Latino. And, intentional. and that's what we were with the fences marketing, that we were intentional. Uh, you know, I went to the cast and I said, look, guys, we, how do we communicate? Because the, it, even within that cast, we had a, a lot of different communities, the gay community, the uh, female community, black community, the rich. So all those things existed, you know. Somebody lived in Hickson, somebody lived in downtown, somebody lived in Alton Park. So questioning them intentionally about how do we get the message out about fences to this community. The first thing that came up was church. We need to get to the churches. And so um, we, we put together, Judy put together a flyer that said, your congregation is welcome. Um, she put a, a little blurb on there about group sale prices, $12 a ticket if you have 10 or more people involved, I handed those to my actors, they took it to church with them. And so that distribution within that um, that community, the church community, uh, we, we did that. Then to their offices, wherever they work. Somebody worked for the school system, somebody worked for UNUM, somebody worked uh, as a delivery person. So they were able to get that out. And then social media. Uh, so intentionally using our actors that were members of different parts of the black community to market to their sphere of influence. See, that's what I was going to ask. It, it has the message has to be different it's gotta be. when it's presented by someone who looks like you. Exactly, and and that was what we did intentionally. And and what I even my instructions were to the actor was don't just post it, invite, mm. and that's a big difference. So if ATN who played Rose is going in and she's inviting people to come see her as opposed to just posting it because after you post it it gets shoved down and you may or may not see it but if you invite somebody it's going to pop up and they're going to see that you're in this show and they're going to see people that look like them so we really made sure that every message had a picture of the actors and so people could say wow this is a black cast i want to go see this so that intentionality even in the flyers even um, we went to several of the television stations. We went on the black radio stations. So these multiple platforms. And so now Julie and I are working on developing an, an, <laughs> a black marketing strategy. You know, how do you, how do you market to the black community? And I think that this experience with Fences has taught us a lot about how that happens. And it's not, and it doesn't, it doesn't seem that different from the way we market uh, to a lot of other uh, demographics, but the intent of just making sure that a list of all the contacts at the black churches yeah, and say, hey, can you put this in your church bulletin? But the same way we send out a press release to all of the media, we need to send that same press release out to all of the churches. I was going to say, it sounds like the, the same thinking can be used for all manner of marketing. Absolutely. How do we get Hickson? How do we get right. East Brainerd, rich, poor? And I can just hear some of these boards saying, but we have to make money. Yeah. At the end of the day, as Chip Baker at Friends of the Festival 
says, no money, no mission. <laughs> One of the smartest things. He's... <laughs> I get it. Um, so it, it has to do all that things it is what I'm, and I think for a long, long time, the money thing became the excuse maybe, or the reason, whatever you want to argue, uh, for some of the decisions. Mm -hmm. And again, I think the ticking of the boxes, uh, explains it. It's the thinking out of the box. And, and I guess part of what keeps running through my head in these conversations is arts is for all. Mm Mm-hmm. If it is truly, it needs to truly be, right? Right, And the arts, to me, has always been sort of one of those areas that not only should be, but can be yeah. for everyone, right? Well, and, it's, and it's, it's, like, it's like everything else. We're saying black history is American history, and it is. And until it's integrated into the curriculum, it's never going to, it's going to always be February Black History Month. It's got, it's got, I can't remember studying anything about Africa in world history, right? Who's, who studied anything about Africa other yeah, than the slave trade? It's always a European It's always a European perspective. So if we're talking about world history, then Africa has to be included. I'm looking at, you know, John Lewis Gates' civilizations. I'm looking at, you know, the black community after MLK. So all these documentaries he's created, it's got to be. A, it's got to be integrated into that. It can't. And the same thing about the arts is that it can't be. And there was a statement I made too: was that it can't be black art and white art. It's That's what I was be, getting ready to it's go. It's got to be American art. What, what? What is the? What would you like to see? Period. I mean, you know, all art for all people. <laughs> yeah. So that means right? Because I can hear folks out there listening saying, "Well, why does it have to be an all-black cast? Why does it have to be?" This play is all black. Why do you have to have a black seri- series? It, you know what I mean? Do we we need to because we always had all white stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. I get. I get. I'm not asking the question. Right. How? It, what is the ideal? Is it where we just don't even think about this anymore? Where we don't right. look and say that's a black actor or yeah, it's ten percent. No, that no always such thing is colorblind. That doesn't exist. You may be color conscious. But you're not colorblind, you know, and, and there are differences, uh, cultural differences, and and I think we have to recognize and talk about colors and appreciation of that, and we don't. And the statement I made to that audience after they looked around, and we had one, we had one couple that were that were Indian, um, India Indian, not indigenous, and so I recognized even them and said, look. Just because it's a black cast doesn't mean it's for black people, and that's that's where we get caught up. Is what makes black art black art? Is is it the person who produced it, or is it the subject matter? I, I've had white artists paint black portraits. You know, is that a black art? Is that white art? Because the artist was, and so come because you can identify with the human condition, the universality of the arts. Period. If I'm looking at this play. I'm going to identify with Troy or Rose or some other character because I see a piece of me regardless of the actors and the color of the actors. It's important for me to have the, the lighting and the sound and all these designers be a part of it so that other black kids can say, oh, I can be a lighting designer yeah. or I can be a costume designer or I can even direct the play. That's what's important to me to, to let them see that they can be that because here are some people that it's, are doing what you want to be. On the one hand... It seems like some people think we should all be the same. We should all look the same, talk the same, all that. I'm one that likes to celebrate. 
I, I'm thinking of it in relation to food. Mm-hmm. I am so thankful there are different ethnic foods. So what, what African restaurant do you go to? Um, African, that'd be a good question. I don't know that I can... Um, there isn't one in Chattanooga. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the other part of, of what we're missing here in this country, period, is that we're the only people that were brought here as slaves. We're, we're the only people that don't have a connection to a past. People want to say, oh, but you're African. Well, Africa has 57 different countries in it. Right. Again, <laughs> right. the black community. The black community have 57 <laughs> different, very distinctive right. countries and cultures, just like Spain is different from France, right. and England's different from uh, from, uh, from uh Another European, yeah, Germany, <laughs> Germany, Germany they're all different. The same thing is happening, but but when we and this this again is going back to the whole history. It's the black continent, and not just black because the people are, but it, it's been long since started that there was no culture, there was no history, there was no industry, there was no learn. None of that existed, on, and that was white sinister intent. I think sinister intent because they had to make us. And our, our ancestors be, not be human. And so that's the only way you can enslave a people, particularly if you're saying you're Christian, and it distinctly says you can't do that. So what do you do? You make these group of people on this continent subhuman, right? They're, 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 once they're the missing link <laughs> type. And so now I can enslave you because you're not really human. Mm-hmm. And, and that mindset has, is, is still present today. Right, that that people still have that in their head, that black people are not fully human. I know that's hard to hear, but I guarantee you, we can walk out of here right now in less than thirty minutes. I can find somebody who believes that. Oh, it wouldn't take that long. <laughs> I was trying to be optimistic. Trying to be optimistic. And, and until we can get rid of that right. kind of uh, train, and I don't know that we ever will. That's that's how we're treated is less than human and and in your mind if you can have somebody be less than human then what you do to them that's 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 inhumane is okay living condition housing socioeconomically everything that happens um, to the black community and then if we're talking the Hispanic community that most of them know specifically what country what village even that they can point back to that they have ancestors in and they have so they can do we can't do that I, I recently did my DNA and found that I was Namibia was my country and it, the joy that that brought to me mm-hmm. I, I probably spent three days non-stop <laughs> on, the, on the website on, on the computer looking at these people trying to find my face sure because now this DNA test whether it's real or not real has has given me a country a place of origin which most black people, 99% of them, don't have because of, because of that. And, and that, to me, is why, we've been, why we struggle so much. And, and the arts, for me, gives us an opportunity to explore who we are, to exhibit who we are, and to, um, and to help bring others into that. Um, and I always say that you know, the arts can solve <laughs> any problem and make everything better, and I, I firmly believe yeah. they can. And so if I can bring that to our black community, to all of our black communities. <laughs> Thank you. And that's, that's, that's part my, of my mission, goal. man. Put an ass on all that. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's my goal. That's good. Um, and I, 
as part of that, I want to go back to that question uh, about how is this program and this campaign being received? Um, is it are the churches and the community are they getting it? They are getting it. Are they it. glad to see it? They're, they're we sold receptive. Out every show of fences except one. And it was a Thursday night, which is a hard night to sell anyway. But the whole run of the play uh, was sold out every single night. And I think if we had extended it another Saturday and Sunday, we would have sold those. Sundays is a popular is a popular night and a day for people because it's two thirty, so you get an, an older audience that are coming, but they leave church and they come straight to, or they go out and have a lunch, or, and then they come straight to the theater. And so it was a perfect, and that's another telling uh, thing for us is when, mm. when in the week do we do that? Uh, I don't know that we've ever had a matinee for every, every weekend had a matinee included. Well, and that's, it's, that's interesting. So that's the sort of, <laughs> I see this a lot where, um, like, why don't we go ask them what they want to see? when they want to come, when they want to do it, rather than, and by them, I mean anybody, any group, right. um, instead of, well, we're going to have an open house night or a free night on Thursday, right. you know, some <laughs> odd thing. And then when nobody shows up, say, well, we tried, yeah. you know, we, we ticked the box. The, the ticking the box is the, is, the big, is the big deal, and I think that's what has, has helped us at, at the theater center is that, that um, we're not just ticking the boxes. And uh, we're being, like, like I said earlier, intentional about what we're trying to do in terms of reaching uh, different communities, whether, whether it's dance community or music community or the, the black communities. <laughs> you got me stuck on that number. Let's go on this trend here. What? Uh, <laughs> that that, that has to be, the, it can't be a ticking of the box. And, and, I, and I know most nonprofits are so over you know, overstretched and overworked right that it, you know one more thing you really tell me but that's that's the difference um, and that's what I've seen in the last couple of years with the foundations and others trying to stimulate that need for the diversity but I'm saying to myself you know what they've been here for this many years and they it never meant anything to them and now, because there's a $10,000 grant associated with it, we're all in. But then what happens when the grant goes away? The board members are still the same. The, you can't legislate the, the hearts of men. I think, and I haven't thought about it until just now, but it feels to me somewhat like the tide has turned. You probably see it differently, but... It feels to me somewhat that the tide has turned, and it turned uh, in part when Arts Build had to completely redefine its mission. Um, and it, and, it, and it, the economy tanked, so the money was not there. The um, older benefactors that we we the city relied on for so long are dying yes so there is a lot less money going to the primary arts groups right. that our Chattanooga as a whole our Chattanooga as a whole and so for whatever you know reason they did it for however they did it my point is it's forced all arts groups to stand on their own two feet mm -hmm. and going back to that it's all about the money thing. It's forced them to really 
change to survive or go away. Right. And I, I hope, just like you guys are doing at the theater center there, thinking how, how do we get people in here and let's ask them rather than we're just going to keep doing it like we've been doing it. Does that make sense? It, it sounds like a really no, long. Well, <laughs> it, but it does make sense, and this is this is you know I'm, I'm just thinking even back 15 years ago, the whole I you know we, we when we saw our primary benefactors start to fade away, and their children not having the same connection to the city. Or there's, or there's a bunch of them. Yeah, right. They move exactly. away. They don't, you know right. they're living in bigger cities. Right. Uh, you you can interests you can, are different. Interests are different. You can live anywhere in the world and run your business via the internet or, right. or technology. And so not you don't have to live here to participate. So they don't have that same connection to wanting a, a better city or even just to want things that they can go to. Right. <laughs> you know, you build a, you build a uh, symphony hall because you love the symphony and you want to be able to go. Right. And the fact that everyone else can come too is is a nice icing on the cake, but right. not necessarily your original intent. Uh, and I think that's what happened with a lot of the way, right. while we became, I mean, the Hunter Museum is world-renowned in its size and, and collection, but that shouldn't happen in this size city if, if, if we're relying on everybody contributing to make it happen. But because we had these very generous benefactors, it happened, and we all are benefiting from it. Um, and people come in, they're amazed that we have something like that, or they're amazed that of all the stuff that is going on here. And, and it's been because of that. And that connection has been um, slip, slipping away for, for a decade at least at this point. And, and I, I agree, I think it has caused um, nonprofit arts organizations to rethink and to develop different lines of business, like. For you know, the theater center's rental. That was one of the other reasons why I was brought on was to to help with the rental uh, right. of the space. And so we right. tripled a, our rental income uh, because there's a person designated to doing that. And so organizations are trying to find those hooks. But but to your point, um, it's about audience development. You know, there's a whole group of people that have not been asked what they want. Right. Uh, but what has happened is if you come to them and say, oh, you need to know La Boheme, right? And, and, and this is what you need. This is what you should have to be culturally enriched and not asking or, or even thinking that our culture is less than fine arts or less than artistically relevant. And that's that's about the asking. What do you want to see? Because they want to see Medea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's well, part of, yeah, that's a slice of life, and then we they gravitate toward that. Uh, we gravitate toward that, and and not all of us do. But but being and having to pick and choose, and to see yourself, and to to be asked is really important. It's that's that's what seems to have flipped is it's yeah. more bottom up than top down yeah. it, it felt like for many many years it was here's what you need to like yeah. here's what I'm going to give you now you support it and now it's I, and that's the same thing that happens in our in our in our physical communities is that they come in well intentioned and start some kind of a program for kids or some kind of program with the rec center or, or paint a mural and then they're gone right right because the money's run out or that the, or the interest is waned at that point and I, and to the foundation's credit of even trying to stimulate 
the nonprofits to think differently and to try and develop that audience. Um, whether the money will continue to be there or not, at least the conversation has started, and I think it has flipped. I, I would agree with you that it has, and I'm telling Black, I said, this is the time, y'all. <laughs> the window is open. Let's I'm glad to hear it. you say that. that <laughs> to me, it was... Uh, um, when the whole create here and move here and all that started happening, you know, my, if I have a um, value, in my opinion, it's that I've done this for a long, long time. And so I have that institutional knowledge kind of thing. Right. And I realized, I've probably been eight years now, um, that all these things, 10 years, when all these things started happening, I would meet with these groups and in my own arrogance, naivete, whatever you want to call it, I started sharing with them my knowledge about how things used to be, mm -hmm. who they should talk to and all that and why things. And, and I realized they didn't care. <laughs> Not at all. They didn't care <laughs> the tiniest bit <laughs> about this knowledge that I had. And I was hurt for a minute, to be honest. You know, I, I thought, well, they're just dismissing me because I'm the old guy. And then I realized they don't care because they don't care and they don't need to care. Rick, it was, it was liberating for me because I thought, I like that attitude. Because yeah. they just wake up and say, I want to do something. Get out of my way. I'm going to do it. I don't need to be tied down because so-and-so's granddaddy used to own that place. Right. Or, it was absolutely liberating. Well, and and I thought, I want to be that way. And, and to a certain extent, while um, I think a lot of that is going on and we're seeing us do it, but, but there's still that constraint. I mean, when, when you don't have... So part of what I'm even looking at with the festival is saying, you know, okay, I've gotten this pot, this bucket of money from these foundations. And, you know, they'll, they'll look at this white, own-run families, whatever. I need to have the same amount of money from the black communities. <laughs> See, yeah. You know, that's what that, that's, I'm intentionally seeking out yeah. black donors. Where are the black rich people in Chattanooga? Where are the black middle class arts lovers? Where are the black people that can give me $25, $30, $100, $3,000, whatever? If I get 20000 up here, I want 20000 over here. Because that's the only way it's going to continue to work. Yeah, it takes Otherwise, money. if we're only getting it from this pocket of white money, then we're never own or build our own and uh, make our own way to your point to it, do needs, it our way. needs to be that well it needs to be that and that intentional right i mean it's yes. not just somebody gives you twenty thousand because it ticks a box right that's what i think needs right. to kind of go away yeah. and, and people but also don't understand. put a mandate that i'll give you this if you do that and that becomes the conditions of these things is the other part of it and and if it doesn't meet your criteria then you don't continue to fund it but that's the thing about mm. you know let us do our own things, stop telling our story, let black people tell their own story in the way that we would tell it. And that's the biggest challenge, I think, for any of the donors is they have all this, these, with the ticking in the boxes comes a, a bullet points of what they're looking for. Yeah. And if it doesn't meet those criteria, then you're not art or you're not meeting the standards that we've set, which are your white standards. I'm not saying that ours is less, but you look at ours 
things that we do as less than the best example I can think of. And again, another dirty <laughs> little secret. That's what you should rename this. Is dirty. Little it is secrets. a good one. That'd be the sub subtitle. Um, the Bessie Smith Blues Hall. That is the best example I can think of oh, of white <laughs> people in Chattanooga ticking a box. Ticking a box. Deciding that the black community wanted a blues hall because the black community loves blues. Right. It, when it, we invented any form of music that's American, we invented it. <laughs> From, and it, the the, the well, number one instrument in, in bluegrass is what? The banjo. And where was that created? Africa. <laughs> so anything that, any music that's, that's not classical European started by black people. Even rock and roll, they don't want to give us credit for it, but we did from Chuck Berry on. Now you can this document the history of it happening. But yeah, that's that's but, that's. Uh, but that yeah, and that hall sits empty, sat empty. It was not because it it was a top down. If right. that's the it was the the black community was not clamoring to get in there. for this blues yeah. hall to be and, built. And now they now they even have changed and this is these are dirty little secrets right here. So the, now they've changed it though, right? So it's the Bessie Smith Cultural Center. So now they've taken the black out of it completely. Hmm. It was it, it started as the Bessie Smith African American Museum. Museum. Yeah. That was the name. So who decided that now it was going to be a cultural center? It's it's like people of color. I hate the term. Right, because to me that dilutes everyone else's issues. If I'm Hispanic, I have issues that are that are particular to my Hispanic heritage and community. Black people, we said same thing. But what that did was, who's not included as people of color? White people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know there was any quiz today. Yeah, yeah, but, but that's weird to me. So, so now they. They've elevated themselves yet again as the community that's so, not part of this community. So y'all are all over here, and we're so good and superior that we have to have our separated. own category. Yeah. And so I don't use the term people of color. I, and we fought as black people not to be called colored people. So trans, trans, you know, scribe those words from people of color. You turn it around, what do you got? Colored people. Yeah. We're right back where we started. Yeah. That we probably yeah, and they ain't labels like that. And labels always. like that. So I want to talk about black issues. So I'm gonna say black people. If I'm gonna talk about Latino and Hispanic issues, I'm gonna say that. If I'm talking about Jewish issues, let's talk about or, or immigrants. Let's talk about the immigrant population, Asian, that's coming that that needs that support because theirs is going to be different. All of them. You can't lump them together because all you're doing is is diluting any one of their major issues and. and and so that's that become so the, the whole Bessie Smith thing. And now, who do we have running Bessie Smith? I don't even know. It's a, it's a white lady. Mm. <laughs> you know, with lots of qualified black people that could be running it. And so, so that again, we have nothing in this city as a black communities to be proud of, right? And and now Howard is slowly slipping away. That was we don't have an HBCU. We don't have any statues. There's, there was the Bessie Smith African American Museum, now it's the Cultural Center. So there's nothing that we can point to to say, this is, this is us and this is what we're proud of in this city. And this, is, this is where we go to, to feel safe and to, and to build community, except for our churches. Um, and, and every other example is, 
And I think the black community feels that they have to be more inclusive by saying people of color or, or black and brown as opposed to just saying black um, to, to, to get the funding, to get, because that's what the crack, one of those, those ticked boxes is, you can't just be a, for black stuff. You've got to have diversity and include all of the people of color in, in whatever it is that you do. And, and that's a problem, I think. You know, there, again, there, there are cultural differences that if we're going to celebrate cultural differences, let's celebrate cultural differences, not just color differences with a European perspective. With that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we we finish up, um, tell people how if they want to get involved with what you got going on over at the theater center and they uh, can, what's coming up. Yeah, they can definitely um, go to theater center and both of those spell R E dot com is our website. Uh, we have um, information about the theater center and opportunities for volunteering. Anyone and everyone can volunteer, it's, and it's not just on stage. Uh, we have tons of needs backstage, and if you sew costumes, we always have needs in the shop if you're a carpenter, building our sets, uh, house managing, ushers, all of those. Um, we had great uh, opportunity with fences at some of the sororities, the deltas, and, and some of the AKAs, and even the links were, were ushers for fences. And so getting them back into the fold of volunteering, and not, again, not just for the black plays, but for any of the things that are going on there, we are uh, welcome them to be there for that. So, so we, we try to be more intentional about telling volunteers that we want them there, but we want them to be useful and feel like they've been useful. So not just to come and sit, but and it, work. If members of the church or churches out there aren't getting the communications from you guys, they can call you, they yes. can call Julie. Yeah, and, and we're, we're going to be um, calling them and to, to develop this database of who the contact people are at, those, uh, at the churches so that we can communicate better with them directly. Um, there may be some opportunity where we have an open house for you know, the secretary of the churches or the pastors that they can come in and get more information about it. Um, on, a, on a different note, the Chattanooga Festival of Black Arts and Ideas um, is happening in June. It's a six-day festival, um, and the, the main event happens on the 19th of June, which is uh, Juneteenth, mm -hmm. which is a, a black holiday. Uh, it celebrates the um, emancipation of all of the slaves, uh, in, in 1863, with Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, it took another two years, two and a half years, for the news to reach Texas uh, before those slaves were emancipated. So we celebrate June 19th, uh, 1865, as our Fourth of July Independence Day. And uh, so this festival is centered around that. And um, every genre of the arts is being represented. I'm, I'm using different locations all over the city. We have a film festival. We have a playmakers festival. The music, which uh, June is Black Music Appreciation Month. So that's going to be in Miller Park on the 15th. Um, we have uh, a dance festival. And I'm calling them festivals because the, the, the structure for the Black Arts Festival is to have these mini festivals on each of these days gotcha. that I hope to grow into bigger things. So we're at the Palace Theater for the Film Festival, for example, which is in Patton Parkway. We'll be at the Theater Center 
for the play, I'm calling it the August Wilson Playmakers Festival uh, on that Friday, Saturday, Miller Park, Sunday, I'm looking for an uh, opportunity, but it's Father's Day, and so it's Black Dads Matter Gospel Festival. Uh, working with Trent Williams to put that together. Uh, Dance with Devontae Williams has helped me put that together on Monday. And then on that um, Thursday, we're, what are we doing on Thursday? Where we left out? Visual Arts. So we'll have a kind of an open um, reception. We did it at Ava last year where we had Charlie Newton featured artist during the Black Arts Festival. So save the dates. Um, things will start coming out. Um, my formal announcement will be on the 19th of this month to try to keep that whole idea of the 19th. This is the 400th anniversary of, and, and I know people, I will give some pushback on this, um, the first 19 to 20 slaves landed in Jamestown um, in 1609, no, no, 1619. 1619, yeah. <laughs> 1619, 400 years ago. So that's a, that's a, that's a again, I'll get pushback because we, we were here long before that. Uh, and so there's that conversation, but you know, I, I like having a date. So um, looking to do some things to commemorate that event as well. Um, but it's needed, and and my goal again is to, um, while all the art and artists are black, it's for the entire community because this, like you said, the conversation, the education has to happen. I want them to see black opera singers. I want them to see black symphony musicians and jazz and blues and rap and soul and gospel, all of those genres of music will be there. Uh, rock and roll, I'm doing a, a tribute to Aretha Franklin. Daryl's son is going to be really the good. headliner uh, for that event on the 15th, so we're excited to have Daryl Wheeler Jr. Uh, there. Um, I knew him as Little Daryl. Little Daryl. <laughs> little, little D, actually. Little, little D. D. He's grown up. He, he has grown up. He is He's very talented. That was oh a great gosh, show. He's so incredible. So that's 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 my kind of big project that I've been working on. Uh, this will be the second annual, but I've already started working on next year. Um, I, I'm I'm really excited because I'm getting a lot of support from the entire community. Uh, you look at the volunteers; they're going to be all colors, all races, and but but I'm really intentional about the artists all being you know black artists because it's the Black Arts Festival. But I think everybody can find a place and find uh, something that will speak to their soul at that festival. A lot going on, Rick. <laughs> we we touched a lot. Of, we ticked a lot of boxes today, didn't we? Talked yes. a lot. Of, I appreciate your time very, very much, um, and I look forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me on, and uh, I really appreciate it. And um, the the goal again is to make people feel welcomed and wanted. That's that's the number one challenge. So, thank you. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. People are strange People get ready People People who need People